As always, I'm very glad to be here with you. <coughs> and Glenda, it's like old times for the two of us to lead a service together. We've lost count how many times we've done this. But I want everyone to know the four years that I was here were among the best in my ministry and in my entire life. When I first stood behind this beautiful new pulpit, I thought, I'm so short, they're going to think I've shrunk even more than I have. But then Linda put a little stool out for me, so now you think I'm taller than I really am. <laughs> when I was a schoolgirl, anti-disestablishmentarianism was said to be the longest word in the English language. I understand that it's been replaced by an even longer one having something to do with technology. The word referred, of course, to the position that in this new nation, the established church or the churches of the standing order should be disestablished. Conventional wisdom has it that our Puritan forebears are responsible for the American tradition of religious freedom. The Puritans did wish to be freed of the ecclesiastical trappings and the legal difficulties with freedom of worship they had in England, but they didn't really intend to extend religious freedom to those who did not agree with them. The Puritan churches in New England, both liberal and Calvinist, paid their clergy with money obtained through the government from taxpayers. In Virginia, that was the Episcopal Church, formerly the Church of England. The liberal churches in New England were those that were becoming Unitarian, and they benefited from this arrangement. The Universalists, along with Baptists, Quakers, and others, were all anti-disestablishmentarians. Even today, although clergy isn't paid by the government, clergy does benefit by having non-taxable housing allowances. A case working its way through the courts may change that in a few years. Church buildings and grounds are free from property taxes. In Virginia, certain purchases by churches are exempt from state sales tax. That is not true in all jurisdictions. And even though we may benefit, still, and rightly, rightfully so, we defend freedom of religion and that wall between church and state. Conventional wisdom has it that Thomas Jefferson, deist defender of freedom of religion, who said that he had to be a Unitarian by himself because there was not enough tax money to pay two preachers, conventional wisdom has it that he coined the phrase wall of separation between church and say, state. He did say in a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association in 1802, referring to the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, 
that says their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. However, we were reminded by the New York Times on July 8th that Roger Williams, founder of the First Baptist Congregation in Colonial America, actually used the phrase wall of separation in a 1644 response to the theocratic Puritan clergyman John Cotton. He said, there should be a wall of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. I'm quoting all this from an opinion piece by Susan Jacoby in which she said, Attacks on the wall of separation established by the founders are nothing new. What has changed under Mr. Trump is the disproportionate political debt he owes to religious conservatives whose views on church-state issues are far removed from the American mainstream. The very meaning of the phrase religious liberty and religious freedom, historically understood as referring to the rights of all Americans to practice whatever faith they wish, or no faith at all, is being altered to mean that government should foster a closer relationship with those who want to mix their Christian faith with taxpayer dollars. While the Enlightenment, secular thinkers, atheists, and of course liberals, are often credited with the idea of separate spheres, religious people have had a powerful influence on that concept. The idea of religious freedom was not a new one in the early days of this country. Schaff, in the book I quoted from earlier, notes that the early apologists, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Lactantius, boldly claimed the freedom of religion as a natural right. In another book, The Religious Roots of the First Amendment, Nicholas Miller has identified a skein of deep conviction about the free rights of conscience that stretches in a continuous line from the early days of the Protestant Reformation to the American founding era. He goes on to say that through the 16th and 17th centuries, a surprising number of voices continued to insist on that right, including John Milton and William Penn. Another example of those who argued for that right was John Locke. In our own religious freedom, the Unitarian king, John Sigismund, issued the Edict of Torda, which granted an unprecedented, although very limited, amount of religious freedom in Transylvania. Sometime in the spring, I found my attention drawn to the fact that there are almost daily headlines about persons and groups busy chiseling away at that most important wall of separation between church and state. I would say my 
hair caught on fire, but so many things since then have called for hair on fire that I say it caught my attention. (laughs) On July 8th, the Washington Post article about the nominee for Supreme Court Associate Justice bore this headline, Religious Liberty Will Help Define Court Pick. The subhead was Trump's nominee could hear cases affecting abortion, gay rights. One would like to say that's not all that's involved in religious freedom. Intelligence report published by the Southern Poverty Law Center has featured articles such as Holy Hate, the Far Right's Radicalization of Religion, Church and State, the monthly publication of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, is of course devoted entirely to this subject. The June issue alone includes these features, real people, real stories, real harm, what it's like to be mistreated because of someone else's religion. Another Members of Congress establish Free Thought Caucus. This has the mission of promoting policy and government based on secular values such as reason and science. What a thought. New York workers don't have to follow onion head religion. I'm not making this up. Ten former employees won a $5.1 million judgment against United Health Programs of America. They didn't want to follow the Onion Head religion as required. Onion Head apparently is a cartoon character created by a relative of the CEO of Cost Containment Group. Since then, the Washington Post has reported a 34-year-old painter in Oregon is suing a construction company for firing him after he refused to join a Bible group for employees. I haven't heard anything about the disposition of that case. More from Church and State, same issue in June. How did a nation founded on separation of church and state end up paying for prayers in Congress? This article points out that founding father James Madison suggested that members of Congress, if they desired the services of a chaplain, pay for one out of their own pockets. Another headline, 75 years later, a key First Amendment case brought by Jehovah's Witnesses remains relevant. This refers to the case in 1943 where the Supreme Court reversed a prior decision that school children had to salute the flag even if it were against the family faith. The headline on an opinion piece in the July 29th New York Times read, Mike Pence, Holy Terror. Turns out the article was about a forthcoming book and concludes with comments about the zeal of those whose stated goal is to make the United States a Christian nation. 
They say again, but it was never intended to be. I think the religious right is encouraged by the zeal of religious extremists from other faiths. Another headline, Israel officially became a Jewish nation rather than a secular one. Now, conventional wisdom has it that all Americans believe in religious freedom. Sadly, that is not entirely true. Some want religious freedom only for themselves. In July, I read this. Jeff Sessions announces creation of Religious Liberty Task Force at DOJ in response to dangerous movement. This may sound like the script for some strange work of satire, but again, I want to assure you I'm not making it up. Sessions did mention Muslim, Jewish, and Hindu religions and proclaimed that the DOJ would protect all adherents from discrimination, according to Molly Heath's article in Slate. But it continues, in arguing that it was an unease over a changing cultural climate that motivated Trump voters and the administration's religious liberty policies, Sessions seemed to refer more to the complaints of the Christian right. He went on to remind participants at the Religious Liberty Summit that Trump had promised that we would say Merry Christmas again. Now, I've never felt I couldn't say Merry Christmas, even though I don't use it in place of good morning for the entire month of December, and I don't use it without regard to whom I'm speaking to. I know a lot of people who don't celebrate Christmas. Sessions is a Methodist and has been chastised by a very large group of Methodists for pronouncements such as these. I grew up in the Methodist Church, and I was taught there as well as in the public schools that all Americans' religious freedom was protected by a sturdy wall of separation between church and state. I was happy to hear that most Methodists still think that. The group Sessions was speaking to is the Alliance Defending Freedom, which the Southern Poverty Law Center has called a hate group that would like to push the LGBT community into the closet, if not into jail. In turn, Sessions has attacked the Southern Poverty Law Center, <clears throat> which says that just as religious beliefs would not be a defense in a hate crime prosecution, vilifying others in the name of religion should not immunize a group from being designated as a hate group. This invisible but significant wall was intended to protect institutions and believers of any religious faith from the government. The religious right seeks to tear it down. What is needed now is a strong movement to protect the state 
and therefore all its citizens from that version of church, Christianity, religion. This narrow understanding of religious freedom implies that only a faith that breaches that preaches a certain brand of Christianity is authentic, although that excludes many Christian churches. This kind of faith opposes all abortions regardless of circumstances and to a great extent birth control. It is dismissive of women who speak out and women who seek control of their own bodies and their own stories. It aggressively attacks gays and trans people. It has led to such governmental overreach as a Muslim ban. It threatens all who would be free. It claims to re- the right to make everyone else abide by its narrow, exclusive way of being in the world. The ACLU and others have been active in fighting these moves. A New Yorker cartoon recently had the tagline, because because religious freedom is never about stopping persecution, it's about being the one who gets to do it. A little cynical, yes. In 1888, Schaff wrote that the separation of church and state seems to be regarded as a self-evident fact and truth which need no explanation and defense. I believe that this has continued to be the case for many Americans. We seem to have a knee-jerk reaction to terms like religious liberty, assuming that it means the same thing to all of us, that it is a self-evident fact and truth which needs no explanation and defense. Alas, not everyone agrees. It was recently reported that a county clerk in New York State denied a gay couple a wedding license because of her sincerely held religious beliefs. Governor Andrew Cuomo ordered an investigation, maybe because of his sincerely held belief in the Constitution of the United States. The first words of the First Amendment to the Constitution are, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Nowhere does it suggest that anyone has the right to force their own religious beliefs on others. Now, I am not a legal scholar, a judge, or a member of the United States Supreme Court, so I can't make any legal determinations about religious freedom. Most of my life, I have adhered to the assumption that religious freedom is available to all in this nation, that each of us has the right to practice our own faith, but not to require anyone else to abide by it. As Schaff put it, that it is a self-evident fact and needs no explanation or defense. 
Jonathan Merritt wrote for the Metro section of the Washington Post an article with the headline, The New Meaning of Religious Liberty. In it, he says, the concept of religious liberty has always been a core American value, but the phrase has become a rallying cry for conservatives specifically in recent years. A historically uncontroversial concept has become a point of contention. He concludes, it's fair to say that our founders would hardly recognize what is now called religious liberty. We the people must decide whether we will accept this redefinition. After all, religious liberty is for everyone or it is for no one at all. A recent communication from Americans United says, discrimination in the name of religion is not an American value. May it be so. May it be so.